Good morning, everyone. Um, like Pat said, my name is Joey Goodall. I write for Mockingbird. I was on the planning committee for this. And in my day-to-day -day work with uh, Faith Lead at Luther Seminary, I get to work with our next speaker. So I get to introduce her, and I'm very excited about it. I took some notes because she oh, wears you. many hats, and I don't want to forget some of them. So Katie Langston grew up Mormon in Cache Valley, Utah, and converted to Christianity after a profound experience with God's grace changed her life. Katie is the director of digital strategy at Faith Lead at Luther Seminary. She is the pastor of mission and outreach at New Promise Lutheran Church in St. George, Utah, co-host of the Enter the Bible podcast, oh, yeah. and author of an excellent spiritual memoir that you can get out at the book table called Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. Katie lives in Utah with her husband, daughters, and dogs, and I'm beyond thrilled to have her here. So without further ado, Katie Langston. Okay, to just turn this little guy around. I'm not, I'm not cool enough to be able to like walk around, you know? <laughs> I, gotta have, I gotta have my notes. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Joey, for that awesome introduction, and thank you all for being here. I'm just so, I'm so delighted um, to have the opportunity to speak with you today. So, um, a few months ago, um, I listened to a podcast about the Oedipus Trap with journalist Megan McArdle, who writes for the Washington Post, and no, 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 don't panic, I am not talking about the Oedipus complex, right? Uh, that would indeed be a very exciting topic for a talk, but I confess it's a bit out of my expertise. <laughs> uh, still, it does have to do with the play, the Greek tragedy, Oedipus Rex, which isn't exactly the world's politest story, right? It's quite gruesome. Uh, you remember how it goes, Oedipus's father, King Laos, receives a prophecy that his newborn son will grow up to kill the king and marry his mother, the queen, which was a relatively undesirable outcome, even in ancient Greece. So Oedipus's father decides that his only option is to kill the child. He doesn't want to do it, but he has to because this prophecy is just too horrific, so he gives instructions to a servant to take the baby out and expose him to the elements. But the servant loses heart. He can't do it, so he gives Oedipus, the baby, to a shepherd, who in turn takes the child to Corinth, where he's adopted, in, he's adopted into a royal family there. Fast forward a few years, Oedipus is traveling over a mountain, and he's attacked by a caravan of men, and in self-defense, Oedipus kills them all. And what he does not realize at the time, of course, is that one of the men he has killed is his father. Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. Then... When Oedipus arrives back in his own country, he defeats a sphinx by solving a riddle. Here's the riddle. What has four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs at night? Anyone? What? Human beings. Correct. But you've read it. 
Okay. <laughs> yes. So, anyway, the Sphinx is like so. I guess that I guess Sphinxes don't think that people can think of things like that. So he's so like distraught that he dies, and he saves this entire kingdom. And so, because of this, he is made king of his unknown homeland, right? And whom do kings marry? Yeah, that's right, the widowed queen. So long story short, eventually the truth comes out. The queen kills herself in shame and Oedipus gouges out his own eyes so that he never has to behold the children he has fathered with his own mother. End of play. And that, my friends, is what grace is all about. Thank you for coming to my talk. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, you see, Oedipus Rex, I, I, what I learned in college is that it's supposed to be something about something, something, faint, fate, something or other, but, but that's not what this journalist, Megan McArdle, picked up on. She was fascinated by this idea that some truths are so terrible, so unbearably painful to confront, that if, they, that if we were to confront them, they would destroy us. And she relayed the story of Dr. Walter Freeman, a well-known psychiatrist who invented the lobotomy. And how, after performing over 3,000 lobotomies over the course of his life, and training countless others to do the same, he went to his grave, believing that the procedure was helpful and good even after it had been entirely discredited by the medical community. He even went so far as to spend the years before his death traveling the country in a camper van, seeking out the patients he had treated, asking them basically to reaffirm that he had done the right thing. And so McArdle wondered, how could he face the truth? He couldn't. Not so much because the world wouldn't forgive him, although it hasn't been kind to him, but because how could he forgive himself? The awful reality of believing yourself to be a person who had helped people, only to be confronted with the truth that you had harmed far more than you'd helped, was so devastating to his self-concept that he could never face it. And McArdle's conclusion was some truths, if faced, will kill you. Now, I'm going to assume that most of us here don't have truths quite as terrible as inadvertently uh, murdering one parent and marrying the other or inventing a medical procedure that ends up being uh, pretty barbaric and making already vulnerable people more broken and vulnerable. But I'm also willing to bet that most of us know what it is to go to great lengths to preserve our self-concept. In Oedipus's case, it was the self-concept that he wasn't a father-killing mother-marrier. In Dr. Freeman's case, it was that he was a good person and a good doctor who did good things for humanity. In Oedipus's case, the truth was so unbearable it led to death and self-harm. 
In Dr. Freeman's case, he simply refused to face it. Indeed, at times it seems that those are our only two options when confronted with impossible truths. We must choose between self-annihilation and self-delusion because to live in reality would be too much to bear. Yet to live from falsehood is itself a kind of torment, a twisting, contorting labyrinth of compromises, denials, and deflections. You can get lost down those corridors until you're so far gone, you don't even recognize yourself. I suppose that in some ways, both paths lead to self-annihilation. One just takes longer. But what if there is another way through? And what if that way through is grace. So for me, one of the truths that was too difficult to admit was that I'd lost my faith. You know, maybe that sounds a little trivial. You know, in our secular age, people lose their faith every day. <laughs> it's not that big a deal. It's hard to believe in things like God and angels and demons and holy books and people rising from the dead, you know? So many simply stop. No muss, no fuss, on to the next thing. For me, though, it was more than my faith. It was my entire world. I was raised Mormon in Utah, and every family on the street growing up, with the exception of the bad ones uh, across the street who who drank beer and listened to Michael Jackson, <laughs> was Mormon. And since uh, Mormon congregations are assigned based on geography, um, and since there were so many Mormons in the immediate vicinity there, our neighbors were our church community, and our church community were our neighbors, and we knew everyone, and we knew everything about everyone, and, and it was our entire universe here in just a few blocks, really. I remember the next door neighbor paying me 10 cents to pull some weeds, and she said she assigned such a very high price to such a menial task because I could give one penny of it to the church in tithing. In my memoir, Sealed, I write a bit about what it was like. Even now, I can't separate my religious past from my religious present any more than I could carve a boulder from the walls of the Wellsville Mountains with a wish. It is simply who I am, a Mormon. The clean-cut boys on bicycles, the fantastical stories of gold plates and angelic visitors, the prohibitions on alcohol and coffee, the rows of elderly white men in white shirts and conservative ties whom we called prophets and apostles. This is the language, the landscape of my youth. The, the rhythms of Mormon life, disciplined and rigorous, were passed down through the generations. Get up, read the scriptures, eat breakfast, go to school, come home, have dinner, say bedtime prayers. Mondays are family home evenings. Wednesdays, mom crosses the backyard to the church building for the youth activities she's planned. 
Sundays, you attend services and no nonsense, no frills or deal in practical wooden pews. Hymns are accompanied on the organ. Sermons are delivered by congregants on a rotating basis. The weekly emblems of the Lord's Supper, which consists of bread and water, are passed from row to row, for even in sacred ritual, Mormons don't drink wine. For years, it was impossible to imagine anything else. And it wasn't just the present that occupied me. To be Mormon is to, is to have a family story that stretches far into the past and on into an eternal future. You've heard uh, of the Mormon practice of baptisms for the dead, right? Maybe some of you have. Uh, these are baptisms performed by the living for and in behalf of those who have gone before. And they usually use names in the ritual um, that have been uncovered through long, painstaking hours of genealogical research. They're trying to reclaim their families, right? So in other words, in Mormonism, we quite literally baptize our ancestors, not just receiving Mormon baptism on their behalf, but baptizing their stories and their histories, writing them into the Mormon story, a, a cosmic tapestry of family and belonging that stretches for as long as you can imagine in any direction. My friend, a scholar and memoirist, Joanna Brooks, wrote this beautiful poem about what it is to be Mormon. Father, mother, help me piece together the contradictions of my life. White cotton, red satin, brown polka dot, torn Sunday dress, Navajo rug, frayed baby blanket. Make me insistent on every lonely shred, willing to sacrifice no one. Where there is no pattern, God, give me courage to organize a fearsome beauty. Where there is unraveling, let me draw broad blanket stitches of sturdy blue yarn. Mother, father, Give me vision. Give me strength to work hours past my daughter's bedtime. Give me an incandescent all-night garage with a quorum of thimble-thumbed grandmothers sitting on borrowed folding chairs. We will gather all the lost scraps and stitch them together, a quilt big enough to warm all our generations, all the lost, found, rich, poor, good, bad, in, out, old, new, country, city, dusty, shiny ones a quilt big enough to cover all the alfalfa fields in the Great Basin. Bigger. We are piecing together a quilt with no edges. God, make me brave enough to love my people. How wonderful it is to have a people to love. Now that's probably one of the most beautiful expressions of Mormonism. And I bring that here because it's, it's way too easy <laughs> to say, well, I used to be that and that was bad, <laughs> and now I'm this and it's good. But in fact, there's a continuity to our lives. In fact, there's a continuity to our lives. And it's important to acknowledge the truth of what has been. And I was all in. 
I was all in not because I chose it, but because it never occurred to me that there was anything else to choose. To have a people you can rely on, who speak your language, who believe and practice as you do, who take care of you when you're sick and surround you when you're lonely, even when they do things that hurt you too. There is nothing quite like it in this world. But what do you do when you begin to speak a new language? to believe and practice differently. Do you still have a people then? What happens to them? What happens to you? <laughs> because you see, I doubted a lot. Even from the time I was a child, I doubted and the doubt hung on me like a millstone. My earliest religious memories are begging that God would remove my doubt from me, give me a clear witness, what Mormons call a testimony, so that I could know, which was the word that everyone around me used, know that the church was true. And looking back, I'm certain that's why I served an 18-month proselytizing mission to Bulgaria when I was 21. It was a deeply formative experience, one that has shaped the person I am in good and bad ways, but... It didn't resolve my doubt. Neither did getting married for time and all eternity to my husband, Lanny. Time and all eternity, that's what they say. In a Mormon temple a year after I returned home, neither, for that matter, did conceiving our first daughter six months later, which was a whirlwind few years in young adulthood that were the right and proper steps that young Mormons are supposed to take because they're supposed to solidify us in faith, set us on a course, full steam ahead, ensure that we take our proper place along, among the long line of progenitors and ancestors that will be our company here and hereafter. But for whatever reason, it didn't work for me. And the more I strained to make it work, the more I grew discontented and ever more doubtful. I started checking out books at the library on early Mormon polygamy, which caused a friend to ask me if I was okay. Because these were questions you were supposed to keep hidden. Or perhaps more to the point, you weren't supposed to ask them at all. And the pressure mounted. And the doubt kept rising. And my anxiety soared and peaked until one night, I just stopped fighting. I was in our dingy basement apartment in Moscow, Idaho, where my husband was in graduate school. It's a beautiful little town. And he was out late doing schoolwork, and our baby daughter was in bed, and suddenly I find myself admitting to God, I don't know that I believe any of this. And as soon as I said the words, it occurred to me that these were the words I had spent my entire life trying desperately to never express. 
They were the words that I believed would annihilate me. They threatened my community, my family, my cosmology, my identity, my deepest self-concept. And yet, on the other side of saying those words there in that terrible, moldy basement, <laughs> I discovered that I was still there. I was still there. I hadn't imploded. <laughs> I hadn't spontaneously combusted. <laughs> in fact, it was one of the clearest times in my life that I remember feeling real, genuine peace. The truth will do that to you, I think. And as I've reflected on this experience, I've wondered what was it that brought me to a place of being able to say the words out loud that seemed so threatening for so long? And sometimes, perhaps we're brought face to face with the answer and we can't deny it, a little bit like Oedipus and his mother, right? It's just there and it, boom. <laughs> but for me, I believe the reason I could withstand it is because little by little, I had begun to experience God's grace. I won't get into the whole story, but I will share this. If you know anything about Mormonism, another thing that you might know is that the profound, all-encompassing sense of belonging and identity that I described that has very many beautiful aspects indeed, it comes at a price. That is to say, you must earn it. You earn it through rigid requirements of behavior and even thoughts that Mormons call quite literally worthiness standards. You must be worthy of the presence of the Holy Spirit, they say. You must be worthy to qualify for the blessing of being with your family for eternity. To belong is to behave. It is contingent, and it's contingent on you. The Mormons teach that you will be saved after you have done all you can do. That is to say, when you have done everything you can, then Jesus can come in and make up for what you lack. But how can you ever say you've done all you can do? I mean, technically speaking, every time you go to the movies instead of serving the poor, boom, you have not done all you can do. So I had gone along with this regime for my entire life, and it had not been kind to me. But it was all I knew. It was all I was willing to know. But what caused me to question it, what opened me up to face the reality that everything I built my life upon might not be exactly right, was that a few months before this terrifying and wonderful admission, in my kitchen, I had heard for I think maybe the first time the gospel. I had heard the gospel. And it's a strange thing to say because I thought I had the gospel. You know, I'd spent 18 months knocking on doors in Eastern Europe trying to convince others I had it too. I told them that they too could become worthy of God's love by paying 10% of their income to the Mormon church and giving up coffee. And, <laughs> and ask which had one person we were trying to convert say, seriously? <laughs> you want me to give up coffee? And when I told her that God totally hated the stuff, 
She burst into laughter. <laughs> she said, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Which in hindsight, you know, power to her. <laughs> anyway, one night long, not long after I got home and, and was married to my husband, I went to hear a talk by um, Dr. Jerry Root, who's a C.S. Lewis scholar from Wheaton College, and he happened to be visiting the campus of Utah State University in Logan, Utah, my hometown, go Aggies, um, lecturing about Lewis's life and works. And he shared a story in this talk, he shared a story about a time when he had been asked why he was a Christian, and his reply was this, I am a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. I'm a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. I don't think I could live without forgiveness and without the love of God. And friends, it had never occurred to me that it might work the other way around. Right? Like, instead of qualifying for God's blessing and earning belonging through worthiness and compliance, you might seek out God because actually you never can earn it. And more than that, I don't even know that I was actually seeking. I, I kind of thought I knew what, what was right, but, but God intruded into my life interrupted me from outside myself, and with this simple word, flipped everything that I thought I knew on its head. I am a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. I was devastated. I was devastated and exhausted and anxious and afraid and full of doubt, and God came and found me right there and said, you do not have to do this anymore. I had no idea how incredibly disruptive that would be to my life to see the world through the eyes of grace, and it took a really long time to like kind of figure out the implications, which were massive. But somehow, it had given me an inkling that whatever was to come, whatever devastating deficiencies I was going to have to face, I would be okay. And that germ of a thought worked in me for months until I found myself in the kitchen of that basement apartment uttering words that I'd once thought would kill me, but were themselves grace because they were true. Now, speaking of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite books is, uh, of his is Till We Have Faces. Has everyone read it? Some of you? If you haven't, you're going to go out, you're going you're gonna to look it up on the old Amazon or bookshop.org, you're going to order it. That's beautiful. It's a, it's a retelling of the Greek myth of Psyche and Cupid, lots of Greek literature today, I guess. Um, 
from the perspective of Psyche's sister, Queen Arul. Now, Arul suffers from a facial deformity, and she's so ashamed of it that she spends her life with her face covered. Uh, and the only person she really loves is her beautiful younger sister, Psyche, who falls in love with Cupid, or Cupid falls in love with her, and she tries so hard not to let her go and opens herself up to almost no one else. And she has a lonely, miserable existence, and she feels she has been wronged by the gods, okay? So the book is her complaint to the gods, which is a sprawling, detailed account of all the harm that's been done to her, the joy and love that have been robbed from her, the hope and acceptance she has longed for and has never known. And at the end of the book, not unlike actually the book of Job, uh, she finally gets her chance to confront the gods, and they in turn give her a vision of her life from the divine perspective. And I told you to go buy the book, now I'm giving the ending away. Spoiler alert, plug your ears if you don't want to hear this. In the process, she makes a painful discovery. She sees her life from the perspective of the gods. She discovers that much of her misery was of her own making. I think a lot of us can look back and say, oh yeah, that was me, wasn't it? <laughs> the way that she believed that no one loved her and refused human intimacy even though they did. The way she held her sister so tightly that she hurt her. The way she wouldn't show herself to others even though they wanted to know her and she wanted so desperately to be known. So much of her anguish came from living from self-delusion. And so she finally understands why, for years, the gods never answered her complaint. When she sees this, when she has this realization, she says, when the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about the joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word, meaning the word of self-deception, till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can the gods meet us face to face till we have faces? Which is to say, it is the truth that gives us a starting point. It is the truth that gives us a place to begin. It is when we are truthful with ourselves, with God, about the realities we want least to confront, then we can begin to be truly human with our faces uncovered and real. Before, we have been so deformed by the distortions that lie at the center of our souls that it isn't even possible to name what is wrong. And so we spend our lives trying to solve the wrong problem. So there is a life-changing magic in telling the truth. There is a life-changing magic at throwing ourselves on the mercy of Christ. A life-changing magic 
when our babble finally fades and all that is left to us is the simple cry, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, I am deficient and I am devastated. Save me. Save me. You know, it's funny, I said earlier that the truth I couldn't admit was that I'd lost my faith. But the reality is that in losing it, I found it. Isn't that what Jesus says? Whoever will lose, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, yes, I lost my faith, but I lost my faith in false idols that never deserved my faith in the first place. I lost my faith in a system that brought me shame and anxiety. I lost my faith in my own ability to earn love and belonging and acceptance and good. Those things were never going to save me no matter how badly I wanted them to. And to be clear, even this is not something we can conjure up from inside ourselves as if somehow we can force ourselves to see things the way they are. Instead, it is grace that gives us the courage to face what is true in the first place. Because grace does not come from inside us where the lies and distortions run so wild we struggle to know what is real. But grace comes from outside of us clarion call of mercy that restores us to ourselves with the simple words, you are loved. You are loved. You are loved. And sometimes it takes years. And it pretty much always hurts like hell. But eventually, God peels away the layers of self-deception so that he can meet us face to face. Grace, then, is this, my friends. You do not have to do this anymore. You do not have to earn love. You are already loved. You do not have to be worthy of forgiveness. You are already forgiven. You do not have to craft an identity from the shards of a broken culture or adhere to the constraints of worthiness standards or the expectation of your social media feed because your identity has already been given to you by the God who loved the world so much that he joined us where we are right in the middle of our doubt and devastation. And on the cross, he absorbed into his body all the suffering and pain and shame and violence and lies that we cling to instead of him so that all that nonsense could die with him so that when he rose again, we would become human at last as he was to live and to love and to give and to serve because he is the truth and the truth has set us free. So 
So with all due respect to Oedipus and Dr. Freeman, there is no such thing as a truth that is too terrible to face. There is no such thing as a truth that is too terrible to face, for grace is the assurance that every truth, no matter how terrible, will be met with mercy. And when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and all that he is he has given to us, and we will be able to stand face to face in the light of his goodness and grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.